1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's discussion. And I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Jared Hoare. Dr. Hoare, is a postdoctoral fellow and is the co-director at the New Earth Histories Research Program at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and is the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Visions of Nature, How Landscape Photography Shaped Settler Colonialism, which came out with the University of California Press just a little bit earlier this year in 2022. Uh, Welcome to the New Books Network, Jared. Good to have you.
0: Thanks very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be talking with you.
1: Why don't we begin, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you as an author. Tell us about yourself and about how you became interested in history.
0: Yeah, so um, I did history as an undergraduate um, at Macquarie University in Sydney, Um, and I think uh, I I got particularly interested in history for um, its kind of environmental aspects. So I'm an environmental historian um and i first got interested in history um via a kind of um you know rich australian tradition of thinking about the colonial past through a kind of environmental lens um i'm talking here about scholars like tom griffiths grace Caskins, um even Ian tyrrell um And to me, I thought that this form of history writing and thinking about the environment and thinking about colonialism um, helped understand a lot of the kind of political aspects. um, A lot of the um, political problems that is um, with landscapes, with wilderness, with preservation um, that we kind of confront um, today.
1: Gotcha. And so my next question, which you kind of touched on a little bit just then, is I'm wondering how you got interested in the topic of this book specifically. What brought you to these questions about landscape photography and specifically about photographers from the late 19th and early 20th century?
0: Yeah, it was actually um, biography, funnily enough, that um, got me interested in the topic of the book. I got quite interested in a Tasmanian person, a Tasmanian photographer called John Watt Beatty who was a b- very successful uh, landscape photographer in the late 19th century in Tasmania, um, which has its own kind of troubled um, and kind of grim colonial past. And I got really interested in the series of images um, that this guy, John Beatty made of the, you know, the beautiful Tasmanian highlands, which are still a kind of really important site for wilderness tourism today. Um, But also all of the other things that um, John Beatty photographed. He photographed Indigenous people um, on missions in um, Tasmania and in Bass Strait. He photographed uh, evidence and um, the kind of ruins of the convict establishments um, in Tasmania uh, where people were moved um, and detained um, in the early years of that colony. And I think what I got interested in in particular were how these images related to one another and what kind of visual universe um, you know it meant to have uh, a photographer who was taking photos of all of these different things all of these different aspects of colonial society um, what it meant that some of these images were more popular than others. These images were categorized in different ways. And to me, this became like a big kind of problem um, that I wanted to solve, uh, which you know made me have to look at other colonies as well as Tasmania. Um, I started with Tasmania, and then I ended up having to ask some questions like what did the settler revolution look like? What does settler colonialism look like? Um, and I think the best way to answer that um, you know, in the late 19th century is to think comparatively, um, to look at somewhere like California, to look at Victoria, um, just north of Tasmania, in southern Australia, to look at New Zealand, um, and to compare uh, the kind of different images, um, these different visual universes that emerged in each of these places.
1: Well, and I have to ask, are you a photographer yourself? Or did the process of writing this book maybe turn you into a a, a photographer at all?
0: Maybe. Um, (laughs) It's kind of interesting. I think, um, you know, it certainly made me more interested in photography than what I was um, at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that photographs, um, you know, are in general, um, or can be anyway, uh, an underused kind of source for historians um and one of the things that i want to do in this book and that i'm trying to do in my work overall um is to you know take photographs more seriously and and pay the attention to photographs as kind of artifacts as sources the same kind of attention that we might pay to you know to written works to um to letters to correspondence to journals um to those different types of sources so um you know definitely um it has maybe more interested in photography. Um, I've become um, I've become much more interested in the kind of aesthetics um, of you know the aesthetics of environments. Um, but I wouldn't call myself a photographer, um, you know, in a general sense. <laughs>
1: Well, let's get into the book a bit, and I want to start with a definition. Can you give us a kind of, uh, uh, and this is this is not an easy question to ask, but kind of a quick definition of what exactly settler colonialism is, just in case any of our listeners are not familiar with the concept?
0: Mm, yeah, um, you're right. You're right that it's not an easy task. Um, I think like the easiest kind of definition or the easiest way to think about it is that settler colonialism is a you know a, a particular type of colonialism, you know that functions through the replacement of indigenous populations with an invasive settler society it's you know i think most people will um a lot of your listeners will know that it's best theorized still i think by patrick wolf defined by you know those great phrases that patrick developed in the 1990s and 2000s defined by a logic of elimination you know that settlers come to stay that settler colonialism's a, a structure not an event um I I still think those are the kind of best expressions of what settler colonialism is and means. But I suppose, um, you know, in this work and in my work more generally, I'm trying to, you know, mix in an attention to the environmental aspects of this structure of settler colonialism, I might say. Um, And, you know, maybe thinking about defining settler colonialism as an environmental process. The, um, The Australian author Paul Carter wrote, um, wrote about surveying um, and about settler spatiality. Um, it's about trying to create um, a place where the imagination might be enticed to settle. Um, and I think, you know, outside of the, the very clear kind of definitions of settler colonialism, that's the kind of general um, idea about settler colonial culture or about settler colonial processes that I'm trying to kind of accentuate most in this book, I'm trying to think about how settlers made places, or conveyed places, or photographed places um, in a way that enticed imaginations to settle.
1: And settler colonialism was imposed upon different places and different people uh, all over the world. Um, mm. You know over the course of the 18th and 19th and into the 20th centuries, and of course, as an, an ongoing structure in the 21st century as well. But as you said before, with that point in mind, this is a comparative work. And in the book, you're looking at landscapes and environments and landscape photography and photographers in places all over the world in, in a few different places. So what are some of the locations that you cover in this book? And why did you chose uh, choose those places specifically?
0: Yeah, I think like this, um, sorry, I think this relates um, a little bit to your comment, um, you know, about set the colonialism as a kind of, you know, process or as a, um, an imposition um, on different peoples and places all over the world. Um, one reason why I chose um, the locations in this book, which are, um, you know, the American West more broadly, but California specifically, Um, and what I kind of refer to as the Tasman world, which is the the cluster of colonies around the Tasman Sea, um, Victoria, Tasmania, um, New South Wales, um, and New Zealand. The reason why I chose those two sites um, is because these are the two, um, I suppose, most successful set of colonies of the late 19th century. Um, After the gold rushes in the 1850s, um, settlers in these places uh, kind of create a very um, assertive, very confident um, way of thinking about land and thinking about um, their settlement there. Um, and I think, with my questions, you know, about settlement and settler, coloni- settler colonialism, and about environmental changes, especially. Um, Examining them in these sites um, is really important because this is where those environmental changes were most accentuated. This is where, you know, I might say, settlement has been settler colonialism has been most permanent and most successful. Um, and so, again, though, this is also this also means that this is where the the political problems um, of settler colonialism, specifically the, you know, the this. Um, the, the displacement and dispossession of indigenous people. this is where those political problems remain um, kind of crucial questions. So a lot of these a lot of the places that I write about in the book, um, the photographers are based in cities. so we're talking about places like Dunedin in Otago, We're talking about Melbourne, San Francisco, um, Hobart. And some of these cities are some of the most successful, fastest growing um, places in the world at this time. Um, This is something that James Bellich has explored in detail, Um, calls it explosive colonialism, um, in which population growth is rapid. There's a huge amount of movement between Europe um, and places like California and Australia, and between the Eastern United States and California. There's also a kind of movement of people, um, and I will say also photographs, um, around these places in the late 19th century. Um, The other interesting or I suppose the other important reason why um, I've considered California and this Tasman world is because there was quite a substantial um, interchange um, of people, ideas um, and technologies between those two places across the Pacific in the late 19th century.
1: Uh, I recently had uh, May Nye on the book, The Historian at Columbia University, to discuss her her latest book on uh, Chinese uh, emigration around the Pacific world and around settler colonial societies. And she's also making similar connections between, say, gold rushes, for instance, in Australia and in the American West. So it sounds as though these sort of, this kind of comparative work between Australia and the West, this is kind of having a moment right now in the field. It sounds like you're very much at the center of that.
0: <laughs> oh, that's very kind of <laughs> you to say. I think, um, you know, it's a um, but, but, you know um, scholars wrote about this, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting, it's interesting to kind of return to and ask why that's the case. Um I think um that that was very much a kind of transnational moment in the 1990s and i think this moment is possibly maybe a little bit more comparative i'm still transnational um but i I suppose the the questions you know are a bit different um in this case yeah
1: this is a book that's as much as it's about photographs and it's about landscapes and it's about environment and it's about large you know very real but also very theoretical ideas like settler colonialism it's also a book that's about people, and there are photographers at the heart of the story that you tell. So let's talk a bit about some of the characters who play important roles in this book. And early on in the book, uh, in Visions of Nature, you describe what you call six uh, geobiographies, which I thought was was a really useful term. Geobiographies of important landscape photographers from, broadly speaking, around the turn of the 20th century. So can you explain what you mean by geobiography, what a geobiography is exactly, and how that idea pertains to these individuals?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, I'm I'm probably trying to be a bit cute with the term, you know, in the way that um, historians sometimes (laughs) do. Um, I liked it. It was was effectively cute if that's the case. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think um, wordplay is important. Um, And I I, I said before that I've been interested in biography for quite a while. Um, And so when I was putting, you know, this book together, I wanted to think about um, life writing, um, obviously biography, but also earth and life writing, you know, as an environmental historian. So I wanted to, you know, I I use this term because I'm trying to, um, you know, make it help me focus on the way that these settlers came to identify with the places they ended up um, and how they kind of, you know, how their work fed into um, a process where other people um, came to identify with these places. Um, notably, five of these six photographers that I deal with, and I'll, I'll go through them in a minute, um, settled permanently despite kind of moving around um, in the places that they settled to. And so I think this term helps us recognise um, the connections that bound settler image makers um, and colonial places together. But it also reminds us that these photographers never just kind of, you know, conjured these visions out of thin air that they drew them from a vast network of people who were also working intimately with places. Um, You know, these are scientists, writers, thinkers. They were native guides often, um, even the physical places themselves. And so these ties, I think, between um, these kind of like settled settler networks um, and physical places are preserved in the photographs that are produced in this period. Um, And there are kind of environmental attitudes encoded in them as well. But I think in the end that geography leads us to consider how these, you know, emerging senses of sight um, that come across through science, through landscape photography, through new environmental attitudes, they actually came to shape different lives. Um, they certainly shaped the lives of these six set of photographers that I write about. Um, so just to go through the photographers quickly, um, they're all men, um, you know, many of them are British um the first one or the um yeah the first one was daniel mundy and so he's a new zealand photographer um born in wiltshire in england um emigrates to new zealand in 1864 um begins working um you know drawing from the capital um that gets unleashed in southern new zealand during the gold rushes in otago um to take photographs of landscapes and of people he ends up moving to Sydney um, for a while in New South Wales, um, photographing in Sydney, and he ends up um, dying in 1881 in South Melbourne. Daniel Mundy is a kind of, you know, I suppose, a a neglected figure um, in New Zealand and Australian history. Um, But the next one, um, you know, uh, your readers will definitely know of, Carlton Watkins, born in 1829, he went on to New York, Moves to California, um, has these connections with Collis Huntington. Seems to be, um, you know, deeply involved with a whole series, whole series of um, important moments in the history of the American West. Um, I also discuss um, Edwin Muybridge as a kind of complementary, um, you know, figure for Carlton Watkins. He's the one that doesn't end up finishing his life in the place that he settles in, Um, Moybridge has, you know, as I'm sure your readers will, your readers, your listeners will also know a very kind of um, peripatetic career um, moving all over the place. The other photographers, um, there's another New Zealander, Alfred Burton, who becomes famous for a um, trip that he makes into the Maori controlled king country in the 1880s takes these amazing photographs, um, ethnographic photographs of the people who live in the King Country, but is also kind of instrumental in the way that Carlton Watkins was in taking photographs of the natural environment there um, just before it becomes highly valued by settlers as a wilderness and then becomes New Zealand's first national park. Um, The other two Photographers that I discussed at length are Australians. There are Nicholas Kerr, who's born in Guernsey, moves to um, Adelaide with his parents, um, and then ends up on the Victorian goldfields where he makes his career um, photographing goldfields development, but also photographing um, the forests um, and the mountains of Southeast Australia. And the final ones, the photographer that um, got me interested in this project in the first place, um, John Beatty, um, who gets called the the Prince of Landscape Photography in Australasia, late in his career. But he is his family are Scots. He moves to Tasmania in 1878, um, and immediately starts taking photographs um, on the kind of um, you know the the high plateau um, of the interior of the Tasman- of the island of Tasmania um, which is probably the closest comparison in Australia anyway, um, to the kind of landscapes of the high Sierras. Um, he also has a kind of peripatetic career. He stays in Tasmania, but he photographs in the Western Pacific. He develops Walter Munson's negatives of the trek to the South pole in 1912. Um, and um, has a lot of kind of really important um, – his photographs get taken up by the Tasmanian government um, in the 1920s and 30s, um, and his imagery becomes the kind of centerpiece anyway of early efforts to um, communicate um, or to, to frame Tasmania as an important place of kind of wildlife, um, wilderness leisure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those are the six photographers. Sorry for being a little bit, um, <laughs> but going on a bit
1: there that's that, that's fine and you know all of them have you know are, are pretty fascinating characters and they all play an important role in the story so it's it's, it's all good um so those are the those are the the, the photographers themselves so i want to ask a bit about the photography and i've had other guests on who have written books about images and it's always a little strange talking about images on an audio medium like this um, but we'll do the best that we can and i'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the photography itself and specifically about the photography and the role that it played in uh late 19th century empire building in late 19th century imperialism so for example could you maybe explain a bit about the role of watkins photography in shaping how settlers were perceiving places like yosemite or mount shasta or even more sort of built environment places like the spanish missions in california what's the connection between creation of settler knowledge and photography in the american west and in the 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 tasman world
0: yeah um I suppose, yeah, we can definitely start with, with Shasta and Yosemite. So in the 1860s and 1870s, one of the most useful audiences for Carlton Watkins's photography um, were scientists and surveyors. And, and this is a kind of um, a situation that would be familiar, actually, to all of the photographers that I discuss. They were all kind of, um, at various times in their careers, intimately bound up with, with survey work. And of course, you know, so survey work was, was very important for all of these kind of emerging settler colonies um, in the late 19th century, measuring, categorising, um, you know, encountering, describing, communicating what actually the land, what the land held um, and what the possibilities of the land were, um, was kind of core business for settler colonies. So in the 1860s and 70s, Carlton Watkins gets um, bound up um, with scientists and surveyors. He's, he sells images of trees um, and of um, flora to botanists at Harvard and Yale, and images of, of landscapes and landforms to geologists. And so there's this flow of Carlton Watkins's photographs um, across America, but also across the world. They become kind of, you know, important um, objects in international exhibitions as well. So Watkins is quite involved with Josiah Whitney and William Brewer um, and some of his photographs um, are printed in the year 70 book by the California Geological Survey. In 1870, he joins Clarence King's 40th Parallel Survey um, and climbs and photographs Mount Shasta with the survey party. Um, and importantly, the newly encountered Whitney Glacier, which is the last remaining glacier in the American West, kind of settles a, a long-running, you know, debate amongst the scientists about glaciers in the American West. Um, later on, Watkins takes pictures for George Davidson's geodetic survey. Um, you know, and and there is again, as I say, there are similar kind of situations um, across the you know the whites of the colonial world at this stage. But the point is, is that this accrual of scientific knowledge about the American West and about different settler colonies, also in the Tasman world, it, it helps settlers develop more effective conceptions of belonging. Um, and in, you know, in certain in parts of this book, anyway, I'm trying to show how closely photography was bound up in these processes. Um, the California missions um, are slightly different. Um, You know, Watkins is involved in the revival of the missions as a symbol of settler California in the late 1870s. And that I think, you know, we know this is a kind of channeling of romanticism in landscape photography that Robin Kelsey has written about in the context of the American West Um, and the kind of invocation of different forms of ruin um, in that um, romantic turn. But I suppose what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to put this in comparative perspective. Um, you know, Australian historians like Tom Griffiths have written about ruins and what ruins mean to settlers. Um, in some ways that's similar to what Kelsey is doing, um, but in other ways, um, the, the settler colonial politics of it, how it relates to that fact of indigenous dispossession um, is a, a bit more clearer in the Australian literature. But so putting these kind of um, images, um, you know, of the California missions on the one hand, um, of the kind of decaying convict uh, infrastructure in Tasmania that John Beatty gets um, interested in, um, these become kind of convenient symbols for settlers who are sensitive to the depth of their own local histories. Um, Sometimes they're anxious about the depth of their own local histories. Um, so I think we can read this interest in the California missions um, and also you know, Moybridge Bridge takes photographs of um, similar kind of um, ruinous um, mission and church architecture in Central America as well. I think we can read these kind of images of damage and decay um, to, a, as ways that these photographers are trying to narrate and extend and deepen settler territorial belonging um by making you know viewers witness to different forms of epochal change Um, now there is that in the images quite clearly but in this book i'm trying to relate that back to also um you know forms of romantic painting so we're talking in the american case um you know well back into the imagery of people like thomas cole um, in the Australian case, um, there's a number of romantic painters like Eugene Bon Gerard and Thomas Pigrenet, who, you know, th- their imagery is kind of on the wane in the late 19th century. Um, and, you know, these photographs of ruins, um, but although so these kind of like moody photographs of landscapes, um, that are kind of sometimes positioned alongside them, they kind of take up the romantic legacy, um, I argue, in these settler colonies.
1: Landscape photography uh, and and the work of these photographers in the book, you also link it to changing ideas about time, both time on a human timescale, on a human level of chronology, and on a much larger geologic timescale at the end of the 19th century how was that the case? Uh, uh, what is that link between time and image and how did this linkage, how does it help to add legitimacy to settler claims to the land that they are in the process of dispossessing and claiming for themselves?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a, I think, um, you know, one, one of the things that I got increasingly interested in over the course of this project, um, one of the things that settlers are very conscious of doing, as you know, we just discussed um, about the California missions, um, is establishing a kind of time depth to their occupation. Um, you know, in the eighteen seventies, you know, many of these settlers are only there, um, only in California quite recently. It's the same kind of situation um, in parts of Australia, certainly in Victoria. Um, so this draws a little bit on Rebecca Solnit's work on Edwin and She wrote that although Australian, uh, although landscape photography is clearly concerned with space, you know it's quite obvious what ha- what the spatial um, importance of landscape photography is. You know Rebecca Solnit argues that its deepest theme is time. Um, you know part of this is about the you know exposure um, that late nineteenth century the time um, time of exposure that photographers have to use to capture these images. Um, but the other kind of thing that's really interesting about this comment is that, um, it starts to relate this kind of, you know, long story of, um, landscape formation, um, to these images. So I suppose in this book, I'm trying to connect this idea to recent work in deep history um, and settler colonial politics, you know, which is very current in Australia. Um, I argue that these landscape artists were influenced by the newly established timescales of 19th century stratigraphical geology, and how couldn't they be if they're spending all this time with surveyors and geologists um, as part of their work? But earlier, the revelation of deep time in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, you know, it it humbles, as we know, existing human-centered chronologies, and it alternatively positions the earth at the heart of history. And so, you know, I I think it's interesting to think about landscape photography in this context, in which, you know, these images gained further temporal meaning as an expression or an impression of the physical archive of the earth's history. So, you know, I, I'm trying in this case to read Carlton Watkins's or Edwin Moybridge's photographs of Yosemite, not just as this kind of declaration of this obvious spatial declaration of settler dominion, but a kind of temporal declaration um, as well. So each photographic image of landscape, it captures the physical symbols of time in space. There are hanging valleys, um, you know, in the Yosemite that link uh, like waterfalls to a totally different past you know a past under a glacier um you know there are the flat meadows you know yosemite valley you know also can be read then as the result of a kind of long process of glacial accretion um dramatic landforms become this simple result of the operation of you know as charles law said the physical laws over vast periods of time Um, and so this is the case in somewhere like Yosemite, but it's also the case in somewhere like Milford Sound in Southern New Zealand, um, a place that is quite, quite obviously, um, you know, marked by glacial action. It's also the place in kind of more prosaic topographies, um, in Australia. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, and, and maybe we might talk about this later, but but I've become, become more and more interested in the history of geology and the history of the way that photography, um, in this case anyway, um, kind of articulates geological ideas.
1: So, the, the photographs are, of course, they're about landscapes, and as you're saying, they're also uh, uh, showing geographic, or excuse me, geologic features as well. Um, and part of that was a lot of that was intentional right that the, the 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 photographers here are trying to tell stories about this land that depopulates that land yet despite that All of the places that are discussed in the book, all the photographs that that you show in the book, these were places that were in fact inhabited at the time that the photographs were taken. So then why were these photographers attempting to show this land often as a depopulated place? And then to kind of make a more broad question out of this, what role do Indigenous people play in the story that you tell here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and this is, this is key. And I think also this is, um, I suppose, this is the, the agenda behind the, the deep time scholarship that I was um, mentioning before. But the purpose here, um, as I've said, is to, is to reinforce settlement. Um, you know, indigenous presence is, you know, by its very fact resistance, um, and I'm trying to read against, um, I suppose, some of the, you know, some of the obvious parts of this imagery, so to say, and to keep this resistance in mind, you know, a, a, as much as possible. So Lisa Ford's argued that um, in settler colonies, that the very presence of Indigenous people was an embarrassment to this new order that settlers were were trying to construct. Um, and so in colonial photography, um, I try and borrow, um, and this borrows a little bit from the ideas of, um, Manu Karuga. um, I'm trying to discern, um, a kind of like partition, um, between these landscape images. Um, I call it a visual partition between these landscape images um, and between images of um, Indigenous people that in many cases, uh, these photographers found it unavoidable to take photographs of Indigenous people, Um, yet uh, the places that they were interested in for landscape reasons um, were depopulated, as you say. Um, And so one thing that I explore in depth is this emergence of a kind of ethnographic portraiture which is probably at its clearest, I think, in um, the King Country in New Zealand, which is a place that's highly valued for its kind of like mountain scenery. It's the site of Mount Tongariro, um, which became, as I said, New Zealand's first national park. Um, But it's also one of the final kind of holdouts um, of the Maori people um, after the New Zealand wars. And it's very clearly a place that is controlled when Alfred Burton travels there in the 1880s um, by the Maori. And so in this site, um, and this is quite clear in the album of photographs that he composes, he takes photographs of indigenous settlements of Maori people. And then at certain points, he kind of switches into a different mode entirely. And the photographs he takes are very clearly kind of landscape wilderness photographs. Um, and I argue that you know the, the imagery that gets created in these contexts is actually quite disciplined. Um, photographers are, are good at um, discerning, you know, what they're uh, what they're taking photographs of, um, and creating this visual partition. You know, um, well, a potential source. There's always this kind of you know possibility of fracture that kind of lurks behind um, these landscape images. Um, and it's the continued endurance of Indigenous people in places like the Yosemite Valley in northern California, um, where Moybridge takes um, photographs famously of the Murdoch, Murdoch War. Um, it's in the Gippsland in Victoria and in the King Country in northern New Zealand. And in these remote places, actually, which were otherwise highly valued by settlers as wildernesses, as agricultural frontiers or both. Photographers turned their cameras away from the landscapes um, and onto very closely the Awanichi, the, the MODOK, the Gunai and the Kingitanga Maori. Um, and as I say, this created a partition between, you know, landscape on the one hand and ethnographic portraiture on the other. And and actually, I'm arguing um, in this case that settler belonging relied on the ways that these settler photographers organised images of Indigenous people into these into these genres, and how they depicted Indigenous presence. In this case, in this limited case, according to you know stadial ideas about civilisation, I argue, um, and this is you know possibly um, you know a, a provocative argument, but I argue that this innovation effectively sealed a spatial fantasy of settler colonialism, relying on the kind of, you know, the relying on the meanings the objective, the objective kind of resonances of landscape photography in this moment. So photographically wide expansion that kind of proceeded over the topographies and geologies of the Tasman world and the American West, as its rightful owners were contained within these tightly framed portraits um, and these kind of conveniently placed reservations.
1: Yeah, it's 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 about you know control, right? And and these these photographs are showing these people in these very kind of controlled environments. I think that that is a provocative argument, but it's one that I, I certainly buy that I took away from the book. Mm.
0: Yeah, and so, like in many yeah. cases, it's it's a myth, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, of course, like, um, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, Moybridge Bridges taking these staged photographs of um, you know of, of native people during the Murdoch War at the very moment that the Modocs are <laughs> you know quite successfully. Um, you know, resisting, um, resisting settler control. Um, right. In the same moment that uh, Alfred Burton's taking photographs of these kind of tightly contained um, people in the King Country, um, you know, the King Country is associated with in popular memory in New Zealand as a as a dangerous place. It's a place where settlers are, are kidnapped and they are you know mm-hmm. taken prisoner by the Maori. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually, you know, it's important to kind of recognize that the work that this photography does in these moments, um, you know, and how it relates to um, the kind of, you know, how I suppose, uh, you know, how, how vulnerable probably actually mm-hmm. settler, settler colonialism was in those sites in those moments
1: mm-hmm it, it's like you were saying before that, that these images are showing sort of the, the the settler imagination right it's it's they're 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 prescriptive rather than descriptive they're what people settlers at least would would want to see rather than what is actually going on in the on the ground
0: mm-hmm. and, and that relates to their um that relates to their the fact that these photographs are consumer items as well you know we have to remember yes, always exactly. that the, the photographers are trying to sell their photographs
1: <laughs> <laughs> right 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 um so as much as these photographers are taking pictures of, of of rural nature, right, that's the kind of classic landscape photography, that's a lot of what you cover in the book. That's not the whole story here either. Urban photography also plays an important role in creating the kind of settler stories that we were just talking about in uh, Australia, in New Zealand, in the American West as well. Can you talk a little bit about how photographs of cities also told a kind of settler story about progress and about time and, and these kind of stories that people that settlers wanted to hear told about themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the best example of this, um, or the best examples of this are probably like kind of a series of, you know, urban panoramas that are taken in the 1870s. Um, you know, I think the one that your listeners would be most familiar with is Edwin Moybridge's 1878 panorama of San Francisco which is composed in a turret of Mark Hopkins' mansion on Nob Hill. And it provides this this vision of San Francisco as a spectacular Western metropolis. Um, you know, these panoramas, this panorama of Moybridges was, you know, one of the crowning technical achievements of 19th century photography alongside, um, bridges other work, photographing um, Leland Stanford's horse Occident actually. Um, so panoramas are composed in this period. There are some of the Mississippi River, there's some you know, depicting overland migration, um, and this kind of urban growth of San Francisco becomes one of the other central subjects of the panoramic gaze. Watkins attempts similar panoramas of the city in the 1860s, and other settlers used the technique to depict their own kind of booming metropolises. In the late 1870s, um, a um, uh, i suppose an investor um, and mine owner bernard halterman um, after discovering i think one of the largest nuggets of gold ever discovered in central west new south wales he and a photographer charles bayless take a another panorama but this time of sydney um, from the top of his mansion in north sydney and so this Panorama gets exhibited at the Philadelphia Centennial in 1876, um, and then it goes to Paris to the Exhibition Universelle in 1878. Um, and so these panoramas um, are used to kind of, you know, I, I think in one way anyway, they're used to communicate to settlers, you know, how, you know, how fast and how impressively these urban environments have developed and grown. Um, certainly, the, the Sydney panorama is n- used by the New South Wales colonial government um, to promote emigration to Sydney, um, and um, and the San Francisco panorama as well is this um, kind of you know this representation um, of urban growth, of sophistication, of the you know development of Western civilization, you know, so to say, in America. Um I think it's important to to consider um you know as we were saying just before to consider the different aspects of settler photography in this period so there is the, you know the the pictures of this kind of you know wilderness absent nature partitioned environments in which you know there are no people there are these ethnographic portraits of indigenous people um, but also, kind of complementing that um, are these images of um, urban environments and of urban development. And it's no mistake, too, that it's the the panorama that is that develops as you know one of the most impressive um, and important ways of depicting urban environments in this period as well, um, because of the connotations that panoramas have. You know, the mastery over space, um, the kind of you know the total objective view um that panoramas can kind of um communicate um so of course you know the other interesting part about this is the way that panoramas get um used and sent to these um international exhibitions which are themselves you know a result of a you know a high period of settler colonialism um you know they're often sites where colonial symbolism you know are um is um you know, mobilized to their best effect, especially in Sydney and Melbourne in the 1870s and 80s. Um, And, you know, the panoramas were some of the most popular attractions um, at these international exhibitions.
1: It goes back again to what we were talking about, about the settler imagination, right? That people are attending these exhibitions to, you know, learn about places in the world that they will likely never have a chance to visit themselves and what kinds of stories about these places are they taking in Well, they're taking in stories that are very carefully crafted by the photographers in question so you know like you said these are these are really important nodes of of settler imagining I want to return, as we begin to wrap up here, to the title of the book, because the, the title, or rather the subtitle, kind of has an implicit question in it. How landscape photography shaped settler colonialism. So as we as we reach uh, uh, the, the, the end of the interview, I'm wondering if you can attempt an answer there. What role did landscape photography play in shaping settler colonialism in the West and elsewhere?
0: Yeah, um, so the kind of argument that... Um... The argument that I kind of, you know, want to advance, um, you know, with this book is um, essentially that landscape photography evened out inconsistencies in settler development. So, um, you know, we were talking about kind of, you know, the comparative moment in, um, you know, colonial histories or transpacific histories earlier. Um, But, I think, you know, one result of this moment was James Bellich's um, big book, Replenishing the Earth, um, about the settler revolution, about the relationship between the Eastern United States and the Western United States in between Britain and its colonies, settler colonies in the late 19th century. And Bellich essentially makes this big argument about, you know, the unevenness of settler development, the fact that settler colonialism is kind of defined by these booms and busts, which is very true. Um, you know, the economics of, that, of settler colonialism are definitely, you know, the economics of boom and bust. Um, but I think that landscape photography and that photography in general um, actually has a really kind of interesting relationship to that pattern of boom and bust. And, and you know, I think maybe may even obscure some of the those economic conditions. The importance of photography, and this is clearest, I think, in um, the case of Watkins, who... Um, you know, begins his career working on taking photographs on the surveys, Um, you know, does a lot of work for mining companies, um, and then ends his career kind of promoting agricultural settlement in places like um, the Kern Valley. So the the point of these huge photographic um, collections that uh, end up being kind of produced by the 1880s I think the function of them actually is to um, communicate a more reliable um, kind of um, reality. Uh, yeah, to, to communicate a more reliable even reality than what um, the economic conditions actually were um, in the settler colonial American West and in the settler colonial kind of Tasman world. We know that you know there were huge movements of people and capital. We know we know that um, there were moments where people would rush into a site, um, during the gold rushes and then rush out of it again. We know that, um, as a result of that, there were whole economies that, you know, fell apart, but that's not necessarily the, you know, the clearest, um, that doesn't necessarily come across in some of the photography. Um, and certainly it doesn't come across in the promotional photography that, you know, Watkins makes of irrigation in the Kern Valley, um, and in you know other photographers, it um, doesn't come across in uh, the urban photography that's you know taking pictures of civic development. Um, and so yeah, I think you know if I was to succinctly answer the question of what role landscape played in shaping settler colonialism in the West um, is that it, it it marketed it in a way that obscured some of the um, more complicated vulnerabilities of settler colonial development.
1: And on a similar note, I like to ask my guests toward after the the, the, after our, our discussion of the book to kind of put themselves in the shoes of one of their readers, thinking back on this book after finishing it, maybe a year later, or five years later, what would you hope they remember from your book? Or maybe another way to put it is what would one takeaway be that you hope your readers might recall from this book or might take with them from this book further into the future?
0: yeah so um it, it's related to you know what what i was just speaking about um you know that the what i'd like readers to take away is that you know a recognition that the settler revolution may have provided these settlers through the economic structure with the economic structure through which kind of independent societies could be sustained um but the the, the cultural work of establishing t- settler belonging in these places was a far more protracted and kind of intimate affair um, and it relied on this work of photographers to discipline space um, to partition actually um, the kind of threatening existence of indigenous people from the environments that then settler belonging could um, be kind of articulated through um, So not just the settler revolution, I suppose, is the, you know, not just the economics of the settler revolution, um, but also these kind of this, this long and ongoing cultural work um, that settler photographers did in order to um, create a feeling of belonging um, amongst their audiences.
1: And then finally, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they're working on next. Sometimes it feels a little silly when the book has only been out for something like, I don't know, five months in the case of this <laughs> book. But but I know that historians and scholars in general always have a few projects that they're working on at a time. So what is coming down the pike from you next, Jared? What, what have you been working on uh, uh, while you've been completing this book and since it's been out?
0: Yeah, so um, I spoke about it earlier, my kind of interest in you know, geology. So I've kind of followed, um, you know, that rabbit hole down. I've become really interested in surveyors and surveying. And I've been reading a lot of survey reports um, since this book um, has come out. So I'm working on this new project, which I'm kind of calling Earth Science from the South, surveying a revolution in geological history. Um, as an environmental historian, I'm trying to kind of come at the history of science um, in a kind of different way. Um, So the the notable thing here is that I'm trying to um, understand the prehistory of plate tectonics um, not via um, northern scientists and theorists but via southern hemisphere surveyors and southern hemisphere places. So this project explains how the imperial search for coal, diamonds and other commodities preceded the mid-20th century breakthrough in geoscience that we now associate with the plate tectonic revolution. I think about these colonial surveyors, geologists and paleontologists. I'm thinking about them primarily as environmental thinkers, as theorists of past worlds and ecological orders. And so while these leading geoscientists in Europe and North America were relitigating old disputes over fieldwork and theory, um these southern geologists were doing both. They were developing this expansive these new expansive thoughts about continental connection and environmental change over deep time. Um so that's what I'm working on at the moment. I'm trying to you know, write a new history of global geoscience, but from the South.
1: My dissertation advisor, who is also an environmental historian, like to say that environmental history was great because on the one hand, you're studying history. But on the other hand, you get to study all sorts of other seemingly disparate fields while also studying history. And your your current project sounds like a great example of that. It's about history and it's it's a sort of it seems like an intellectual history, but it's also about geoscience and plate tectonics and the history of science as well. So that, that sounds like a, a fantastic project. I wish you luck on it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Jared Hoare is a postdoctoral fellow and co-director at the New Earth Histories Research Program at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and is the author of his new book, Visions of Nature, How Landscape Photography Shaped Settler Colonialism, which came out with the University of California Press in 2022. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Jared. Thanks very much, Stephen.